Let's see, let's do a couple pictures today, um, and then Pastor Bruzek will be back down next week, because I won't be here, so, um, <laughs> or maybe the vicar. <laughs> Uh, but do you, let me ask you, do you want to keep going with pictures? Do you want to do something else? We kind of talked about, you know, the Desert Mothers. We actually did all of the Desert Mother readings. Now, there was some commentary that we didn't do, but we did all their readings. Talked about simplicity. Now we looked at some pictures. Last week, we looked at that article, Bullying Your Pastor. Um, and I, I don't know if you saw it on the news. You guys see the kid who got bullied coming home from school? Somebody videotaped it. Like seven kids yelled at him, pushed him, kicked him hung him up on a fence, hung him in a tree. And you know what the saddest part was, was the woman who walked by and saw the whole thing and didn't stop. And the police officer came on and said, you know, how can, how can somebody, a normal human being, walk by and not stop this? It's the same thing in the church. So we talked about that last week. People sort of observe and then move on um, instead of stopping to help. So we talked about that last week. We were going to get to these two pictures. We didn't quite get there. I want to do them today. But next week, what do you want to do? You want to do pictures again? You want to go on to something else? What are you feeling? No response always makes me nervous because that means nobody's telling me what they really think. No matter what we do, it's going to be my fault. Yes, go ahead. Well, I don't know. I, I, there, I mean, I have thoughts, and I think Pastor Bruzek has thoughts, but what do you guys want to do? You have something, I mean, people have said, great, we talked all about simplicity. How do we do it? We've tried to do that through some pictures, um, but do you have other thoughts on what you'd like to do? If you say, I got a brand new topic, I desperately want to do this, we have time to do it. If not, we're going to keep moving or on to something else. Good? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you give us the nod when you all want to move on, okay? Uh, yes. Yeah, I think so. Um, we've done, um, we have done that. I don't remember how many years, probably four years ago we did that. Um, where we actually went book by book, which isn't quite an exegetical study because you don't have time to look at all the books in depth. But we, um, yeah, we could think about doing something like that. We've tried that in the Joy Group, and that seems to work well down there. Um, so yeah, everything's everything's in play. Um, I have no, I have no definitive ideas one way or another. So, anything else that you're just dying to do? That's good. Exegetical study. Keep doing the pictures. Okay, all right. Well, um, I do want to get to these two pictures for various reasons. But, you know, before we get started, just if you had to talk about it, how would you, how would you describe sin or how would you define sin? This is something we do with all of our new member classes, and it's always interesting to hear the responses. But how would you define sin or how would you describe sin? Just, just what, what comes to mind when you think of sin? Okay. All right. I'll just put down ugly. Okay. Do you see ugliness in other people who are sinners? You like ugly people. Okay. But you can't live with yourself. Okay. Not the part I like in other people either. Yeah. Uh, prevents me from joy. Okay, those are all very good Lutheran answers. Give me something that you know somebody out on the street would say. Okay, still a little Lutheran, but you're getting there. Uh, I wonder if who said that. I like you. That's good. 
That's good. I wonder if people out on the street would say that. They might. You, yeah, well, your husband's a coach. And that's part of it. Okay, good. Good, 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 good. Yes, that's better. Yes, bad stuff. And, of course, out on the street, the bad stuff is always hard to define because there's no objective standard for what good stuff is and bad stuff is, right? Yes, okay. Yeah, yeah, right. So anything that, that eventually leads to punishment. Yep, okay. It is sin, that's right. Um, now, I wonder why. Do we have punishment in the church? <laughs> okay, that's good. Yeah, I was just thinking, that would be an interesting thing. It's interesting that we define sin in the world as that which leads to punishment, but in the church, not necessarily. Why don't you put this on, just in case you have anything else you want to say? Because I can feel it coming. <laughs> I've been around you long enough. I know how this dog and pony show works. If you have absolution, keep going. Uh, now, good. Okay, good. Now, I want to keep going here. I want you to tell me what you think punishment is. What's punishment? Now, this is very interesting. Would you say punishment is a law word or a gospel word? Well, I didn't know there were th every word could be said three ways. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, good. What you're describing is restitution, which has, I think, to a worldly mind, has a different connotation from punishment. But that's different than punishment, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I get it. Yeah. If you break, if you steal twenty, if you steal a thousand dollars. Yeah. I understand cause and effect. Yeah. Okay. But atonement is that different than punishment? Okay. Good. So sin is the cause. Forgiveness is the atonement. What is the effect? The punishment? Well, that's a question. That's So what's happened is, Carol said punishment and restitution. Okay, keep going. you got to tell me more. Yes, if nothing happens. Good. So what's the thing that happens that stops the punishment? Good, yes. So what happens is, sin is the cause. Punishment should fit right in here. Yeah, but because punishment is given to whom? Christ, um, then forgiveness makes atonement for the sin. So punishment is done away with. But there still is some effect, which isn't punishment. Punishment means you still have to make wrongs right. Yeah, good, which is different than punishment. Yeah, punishment is the penalty for doing something wrong. But restitution is an effort to make wrongs right because you've been forgiven for what you've done. Does that make sense? So restitution would fall in here. Restitution. Well, lots of I's and T's. I was watching Final Jeopardy the other day. What are the two states that only have one consonant in their name? You got 20 seconds. Da -da. Good job. You're just like my wife. Abby goes, I'm really good at Final Jeopardy. I said, yes. She hey, I said, it is. And you know what show she hates that I love? Wheel of Fortune. You know why I love Wheel of Fortune? Because everybody's a winner. Doesn't matter how bad you do, you're going home with at least 2,500 bucks. Jeopardy, yeah, Jeopardy, you don't win. What do they say? Hey, try again. Yeah, right. 
Okay, I don't, have you been on Jeopardy? <laughs> oh, well, I think it's, I think it's more on Wheel of Fortune. I didn't actually know that. Oh, so it's a postmodern Jeopardy show. <laughs> Everybody's a winner. <laughs> Go ahead, keep going. Good. So, yes, that's right. So there, so you got you got three things. Go, one, two, three, four. You got five things going. There's sin, which causes it. There's punishment, but because of Christ, there is no punishment. He took it for you. There's forgiveness, but there's still temporal consequences for your sin, not eternal consequences. In this life, there are temporal consequences for your sin, which are then atoned for, made up for, by restitution, right? So. But you still have, yes, exactly right. Or you steal $1,000 from the bank, you're still going to go to prison. Yes. Yeah, and your punishment, yeah, punishment always has a connection to a specific sin. So the, the, the improper way to talk about it is to say, oh, I must have made a bad decision because I, the, I got the flu. The Lord must be punishing me. Well, no, if you went out and bought cheap sushi, then the Lord is punishing you, right? But there are, but there are, Punishments that are directly connected to specific sins. If you have sex out of wedlock, you may get someone pregnant. And, and then you have to deal with the consequences of that, right? So um, the Lord doesn't just punish because he thinks it's fun. In fact, the Lord, the Lord never speaks in terms of punishment. The only one he ever punishes is his own son. The Lord speaks in terms of chastisement, discipline. Um, and frankly, if you look at any of the biblical texts where people get punished, for instance, um, Numbers 21, when they get out in the wilderness, they have a voters' assembly, and they all say, why did Moses bring us out here? What happens? The Lord sends snakes. That's what it says in the English, and we all think, what a mean God, he sent snakes. Guess what it says in the Hebrew? The Lord allowed the snakes to run rampant. So it's as though the Lord's always holding back the punishment, and it's only if you beg him to have it will he let you have it. Same thing with, with Pharaoh. It says Pharaoh, you know, um, basically denied or rejected the Lord a number of times. And then it says he hardens Pharaoh's heart. In the Hebrew, it says he allowed Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. So whenever the Lord does the verbs, it's always here at the forgiveness point and, frankly, at the restitution point. These, sad face, oh, sad face, are all your verbs. The sin and, frankly, the punishment. You deserve it, but the Lord takes it for you. That makes sense? Okay. Relive the story for us. Tell us what happened. Yeah, right. <laughs> there are some they don't put in there. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> next, next capital campaign, Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira. That would be great. On a T-shirt, yeah. Got, got Sapphira. Say that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, here's the here's the reality. You know anybody who's ever lied in the church? Yeah. The best was the best was when, I mean, yeah. Here's the thing. I mean, this is the thing about the Lord. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, and that's what we've lost sight of. We think, oh, there's lots of punishment out in the world. You can go to prison, maybe uh, capital punishment. We always have these grave ideas of what sin is in the world and how people are punished. In the church, we've lost the sense of what it means to be punished. By the corporate church, by the church saying this isn't how we live, we've also lost the sense of restitution, making wrongs right, which are very prevalent in the world. Why are they prevalent in the world? Because there's a whole governmental system set up to enforce these sorts of things. Good. Disease, and you need a cure. That's good. 
Yeah, so you're, so you're sick, you're deformed, um, and then Ephesians talks about you being dead. So there's, there's, you're at some point between either flatlining or almost flatlining, right? Good. What else? Now, let me ask you this, though. With disease, can you ever get better? Ah, uh, exi- good. Yes. So, m- yeah, so, well, now you're talking about sin. I'm talking about regular disease. Can you ever be cured of cancer? Yeah. And frankly, there's a reason the Lord uses analogy. Disease, even in the soul, can actually get better progressively, slowly. But you're right. There's never a time in this life where you're going to be fully cured. That's good. You should write for CPH. I can get you. I can get you out. Would you like to write for CPH? Portals of Prayer. This month's author, author Donna Mishnick. That'd be great. So, but there's a reason then that uh, the Holy Supper is called what? The medicine of immortality. And there's a reason also. The Holy Supper just doesn't have effects for you in heaven. The Holy Supper has effects for you right now. I was almost brought up on heresy charges by a fellow pastor when I said at my very first circuit meeting, if someone had cancer, I'd send them to the Eucharist. Well, this guy flipped a lid. Um, and he couldn't understand that the Holy Supper actually had effects in this life. It doesn't just forgive your sins. It actually can heal your body and your soul, right? What else? Talk about sin. There's one thing you haven't mentioned that every new members class does mention. Satan? That, did somebody say Satan? Good, yeah. So Satan is somewhere in this whole mix. I'm sorry, What? D- describe sin. What did somebody say? This is, a, this is an exam for you. <laughs> no, every new member class says broken relationship. Ah, yes, you implied that by separation. No, you're right. Yes, yeah, say the word. Remember what the centurion says, only say the word and I will be healed. There's something about words and specificity. So broken relationship is at its core what sin is. Now broken relationship, when it comes to sin, and we'll look at this, can go in three directions. Your broken relationship when you sin is with whom? Three three groups of people. That's very good. God. Um, we'll put, let's see. Hmm. Yeah, we'll put the self in the middle. Let's see. Others. And ultimately then with yourself. With yourself. Now, as Lutherans, which one are you confident, which relationship are you confident has been healed or restored? God. Good. Your relationship with God. Why? Because you have the person of Christ. It's sort of like this. Christ sort of stands now right here at the crossroads. So God's relationship with you and yours with him is defined by the person of Jesus. So there's no way you can get that wrong. I mean, you can screw it up, but Jesus always gets it right, and that relationship has been healed. What relationship struggles to be healed? Yeah, I think you're right. I think this one, um, we would like our relationship with others to be healed, but we don't quite know how to do it, right? So we struggle with this. And which one do we never think about? Your relationship with yourself. I think you're right. And I think if you do think about it, you struggle with, some people just don't think about it. I say that one more time. Two-way street, yeah. Um, good. Now let's clarify just a bit. It's not that you're not getting anything done, but you're not seeing the results you'd like to see. Right? Because not getting anything done would be nobody's talking. 
Nobody's working on it. Um, but one way is better than no way. So you are, so yes, if your relationship is going like this to others and you're trying to heal it and nothing is returning, um, it could look as though nothing is happening. But in actuality, stuff is happening. Because every time you touch somebody with your love, with your mercy, it's a little touch of grace, right? And grace is what ultimately heals. Okay? How about with yourself? Why do we not think about that? <laughs> Good. Okay. Pride. Yeah. Or, or we're scared of pride. Yeah. Either you are prideful, and maybe you think about this a little too much, but not the Jesus way, or you're scared of pride, so you're a pietist, and what happens? You don't think about that at all. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You look at you look at yourself. Well, here's what happens. Either you say it. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me say, you can say it one of two ways. Either what Carol just said, it's your ugly self. So you say, oh, man, I can't believe I do this stuff. Or, what's worse, I can never forgive myself for that. That's the great heresy. I know Jesus forgave me, but I can't forgive myself. Right? You can't live, I can't live with myself. Yes. Yeah, right, right. Well, because what, what happens then if you say, I can't forgive myself, yourself has become an idol. Right? Exactly. Have you ever had this experience? I've had this experience, so I'm sure you have too, where you, you think, well, you've sinned. Okay, so sin happens. That's the cause. Then all hell breaks loose. So sin happens. And then what do you start thinking? You start thinking the worst case scenario. Sometimes you should. Sometimes you shouldn't. You think the worst case scenario, and you think to yourself, there's no way Kate, like, okay, let's say I said something bad about you. There's no way Kate could ever forgive me. No, exactly. There's no way Kate could ever forgive me. And it festers and it festers. And what happens? Every night I'm lying awake thinking, Kate is not going to forgive me. And you convince yourself this is terrible. And I go to you and say, I told a lie. You say, it's no big deal. I forgive you. We're all squared up. And then you say to yourself, it can't be, it can't be that easy. can't be that. Because you've convinced yourself your sin is greater than it actually is. And sometimes you should. Sometimes people need to think their sin is greater. Sometimes they think their sins are so great. I get people who routinely will email or call because little things like, oh, I parked, in your par I parked in the parking spot right here, and I realize you parked there every morning. I'm very sorry. And I write back and say, that's not a sin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My name's not on it. You can park wherever you want. So there are some things we convince ourselves that sins are sins that really aren't sins. <laughs> exactly right. That, that's, yes, that's a, very, that's a great observation. And then I'll come back. I don't know who had their hand up, but that's a great observation, which is, we focus on the little sins, which are really just having a bad day, instead of focusing on sins that are really sins. And this came out, I think, for all of us when AOR was here. What, what they found was everybody was focusing on the little sins. Oh, he didn't say hello to me. He must have sinned. Well, that's not really a sin. It could just be you're busy, right? So we focused a lot on the little stuff and lost sight of the big stuff, not telling the truth, bad emails, whatever it may be. Yeah. And I think... Um, when does sin hurt the most? When sins have been either committed against or committed by people who are closest to us, right? I mean, if your spouse has an affair, that's a deeply troubling thing. If your best friend sins against you, that's a deeply troubling thing. And that's part of the reason why. Look at the first image I gave you. Um, you probably don't know which one came out first. So it's this one. Okay? And I told you last week, I tipped you off. That is the image of Job's wife. And there's nothing worse than um, when brothers and sisters or fathers and mothers or husbands or wives actually attempt 
um, to get people to do things that, frankly, shouldn't be done. This is why Jesus says in the Gospels, and people never understand the text, this is part of the reason why Jesus says, unless you hate your father and mother, brother and sister, you're not part of my kingdom. There's no life in you. Why does he say that for this very reason? It's the people closest to us who can actually cause the greatest amount of damage. So look at Job chapter 2. My guess is it's around page 400. What page do you have there? Ooh, oh, 785. Oh, yeah, okay. That's the one with the cheat sheet in it. So that's good. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you all know the text. You have a Bible, Kirby? Job 2. Job 2. <laughs> John 2. We know that text too. Job chapter 2. Oh, Rebecca just popped in. Did you get these? You got them both? Okay, perfect. All right. Uh, so look at Job chapter 2. And you know the story of Job. And the great line from Job is always read at a funeral, which is, I know that in, my you know, in the end, my flesh, in my flesh I will see God. I know my Redeemer lives. Great text. Job ultimately comes to hope, to forgiveness, to restitution. But it's interesting what happens here um, in chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. So that's, you remember the text from, is it First Peter that says, the, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro, verse 3, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Now, just stop right there. How does that question appear to your ears when you hear it? Have you considered my servant Job, that there is no one like him? What does it appear like the Lord is saying there? It appears like it's a setup, doesn't it? Like, hey, you're walking to and fro. Have you thought about my servant Job? That'd be interesting. Why don't you give that a try? Right? So it seems like, like the Lord is, is sort of, you know, leading Job out to die. And I wonder if that's actually the way it is. I think if you read this the gospel way, it's more, oh, my gosh, you've been walking to and fro. Have you, have you seen my servant Job? Like, you haven't gone near him, have you? Right? You haven't, you haven't come near his tent, have you? Then Satan answered, I'm sorry, uh, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. He still holds fast his integrity. I wish I had a Greek Bible. You have a Greek Bible on your computer? Can you look up Job? No, it should be Hebrew. Look up Job chapter 2, verse 3. Job 2, 3. I wonder what the word is there for integrity. It doesn't. It's very, it's very strange. I don't. This might be the first time I've seen it, actually. No, it, it doesn't. That's exactly right. That could be. But what do you, how do you define integrity? If you had to talk about it, what would you say? Good. I was going to say honest. Yeah, but honorable is good. Same thing. Yes, it does. Yes, honest, honesty leads to an honorable person. If you're an honorable person, everything else falls in line, right? Honorable, honest, what did you say? Yep. Words and actions. Do you have that there, Pastor? Uh, yeah, uh, but keep going. It's down near the end of the verse. It says something about integrity. What does it say? There should be a Greek translation down there. I wonder what that says. So, uh, 
Yes. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's, what you're saying is it's being and it's doing. You're an honorable person, and therefore you act honorably. But it's not the vice versa. Exactly right. You don't act honorably, and therefore you're an honorable person. So it starts with your state of being, which gets all the way back to all this stuff. See how this plays off? This is, this is part of the joy and part of the struggle of Lutheranism, trying to figure all this out. Because you have your, all this stuff about your natural self, ugly, separation, disease, bad, disobedient, dead. And yet, what does the Lord want? Being and doing that is filled with integrity. Good. Okay, so strong grip. So the, yes. Yes. And, and the point is, um, tell me, the first thing that comes to mind as a Lutheran, now think about, sometimes you've got to think very clearly as a Lutheran. When you hear the word, Job held on to his grip, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Donna, help us out here. I know what you're thinking. Well, it wasn't Job's grip, right? How could Job have a grip? The point is, this is, this is post-Job being the Lord's man. So uh, this gets back to Rebecca, being and doing. Yeah, when you're here and you're dead as a doornail, you got nothing, your being and your doing are all screwed up. But once you've been saved, guess what? You actually play a part in being and in doing, and that's all of us. So sometimes when you hear stuff like, oh, the pastor's asking me to do this, or the Lord's saying do this, those, that can't be true. What you have to remember is this is post-resurrection. This is post-being saved. The Lord's already called Job. That makes sense? Your, your actions actually are involved in what happens in the world and what happens in the church and what happens in your own salvation. Okay? We're not Gnostics, meaning your body and your, and your life doesn't matter. We're Christians. Yep. What's the Greek word? That is a very similar word to what's used with Mary when it says she pondered all these things. And remember, the pondering, <laughs> Mary's not a Gnostic either. doesn't mean she just ponders them in her head like she sits down and thinks about how great it was the Lord gave her a baby. Because while she's thinking in her head what's happening in her belly, yeah, the baby's growing. So Mary is sort of the icon of what it means to be a Christian, and you get it first and foremost here with the person of Job. Okay? So, go back to the text. Then Satan answered the Lord, verse 4, and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. Isn't that interesting? When Je Remember Jesus says, if you preserve your own life, you will lose it. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. This is Satan talking to the Lord about Job. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So, there's a flip now on the word integrity. Integrity means to hold things in your hand. And what does the Lord say to Satan? You have Job in your hand. This is anti-integrity. This is anti-Christ integrity. This is Satan integrity. Okay? Behold, you do in the Greek. He is in your hand. Only spare his life. Which is basically like, do anything you want to him because he's my man. Just don't kill him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome, loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, and this is what the icon comes from, the picture, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Which is a rhetorical question, which means it's really an assertion. Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. 
Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil or disaster? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And obviously he couldn't sin with his body. Why? Because he was in torment. He was consumed with making his body feel better. Now, look at this image. Think about all we've talked about, broken relationships and how it's those who are closest to you that can do the most damage. What do you see in this image of Job's wife coming to Job? Don't think about the text. Just think about what you see in the image. Yeah. I need a photographer to tell me about light and darkness. Yes. Yes, I do. And, and good. So she comes to Job bearing the light, but she herself can't look into the light. But now look at her face and look at where, where's, where are Job's eyes directed. At her face. Yeah, at her. But it's almost as though he's looking at the light on her face, not at her. I mean, he could just be looking at the candle, but he doesn't. He looks at her face, right? Keep going. What else do you see? It's almost as though his face has disappeared. Yeah. yeah. That's right. That's right. When I first saw it, I thought it was the beheading of John the Baptist. Same thing. I thought it, I thought it was um, her looking down at a headless John the Baptist, which it does have some, you know, it brings to recollection that image. But the interesting thing is, like, as she looks at him, she can't even see his face. But here's the, okay, so good. Now stick with that for just a second. When the one who is sinning, the wife in this text, comes to Job, what does she do to Job as she looks at him? She almost, it's almost as though she dehumanizes him. She effaces him. She can't see who her husband actually is. That makes sense? You said it. You said you can't even see his head here. It's almost as though she goes to him wanting him to sin, but she can't bear herself to look at his face. Yes, she is. That's, a, that's exactly right. Yeah. So when you sin against others, in some sense the way you treat them is less than human. That's why James says, why do you guys go around biting and devouring one another? Well, none of you have ever gone off and said, like, Carol, you don't go and take a bite off of, you know, Kate. Yeah, exactly. You don't do that. Yeah, right. But the point is you don't do that. So how do you do that? This is, this is why James uses the image of animals. James uses the image because in your sinning, you treat people as less than human. And this is precisely what Job's wife is doing. She can't even bear to look at him. What else do you notice? Look at her hand that's on his head. N exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, almost upside down. Isn't that interesting? It's, like it's almost like a priestly blessing but upside down. Could be. Yeah. <laughs> well, just because, yeah, just because she may not have intended the anti-blessing doesn't mean the artist may not have worked it in, right? But you are right. Part of, it's a very practical reason she's not touching him. He's full of sores. Now, see, it's very interesting because I, I see something very different in her face. Here's what I see, and I think you're right now that you say it. Yeah, see, what I see in her face, real honestly, is false concern. When I first saw the picture in her hand, it was almost as though, you know when you have a child and your kid's sick and you come up and you say, it's going to be okay, and you kind of you know, rub their head? It was sort of like she's looking at him like a child, like, like it was false concern for a sick child. That was the first image I had. Or, and I'll tell you, the other Im image I had is almost false seduction. Like she's attempting to sort of draw him back in, 
but she knows she's doing it for all. And I know that's not the point of this. The point is she's showing false compassion, false concern, false whatever to this picture. Go ahead. Took it out of his hand. Interesting. Of his hands? Yeah. Well, look at his hands. They're together. It's almost as though he was he was holding the candle between his hands. Yes, Donna. Yep, exactly. No, she's not. So, so good. Sin, in relationship to others, treats them as less than human and actually breaks them. Is she doing him harm or good? No, she's not doing him any good. She's making it worse than it was before. Okay? What else do you see? Actually, this is very good. This is more than I initially thought. But do you, Yes, Rebecca. It's sort of a false empathy. It is like, and you hear this all the time in the church, you know, people who have never had a miscarriage, they say, I know exactly what you're going through. If you just did this, and you want to say, you have no idea what, you, what I'm going through, right? But this happens all the time, and frankly, it happens by people who think they are the most mature Christians. Because what do they think? I'm the most mature, so I can go and tell everybody else how to fix their problems, right? You see this all the time, and it especially happens, sorry, you keep raising your hand, especially happens between same sexes. So like men will say to men, just buck up and manage your family and everything will be okay. I know it. And then you look at his family and it's a mess. Or women will say, let's have a, let's have a glass of wine and talk. I know exactly what you're going through. Right? Usually it doesn't happen across sexes because people feel like that sort of goes a little too far. Oh, yes, it does. Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah. But that's a different sort of relationship than between uh, fellow parishioners. Yes, Karin. Oh, you know what? Let me go, uh, go ahead, Karin. Men are different in how they deal with each other? Is that what you said? Oh, yes, very much so. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's part of this discussion. Yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, right. Okay, now we're going a little too far. I'm not going to... Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, if you remember. Yep. Get out. Yeah, this is, a, this is too far. Too much. And it, it almost, it is in opposition to the two images you had of Mary and of Eve grieving the death of their sons, which were very much, they were dressed for death. And they sort of gave their sons away. This is like, if you're going to come back, come back now. If not, we're done. That sort of thing. Ultimatum point, right? Exactly. It's one thing to lose his sons. It's another thing now to lose his spouse. And so who does he have left? This is the point of the Job text. He has no one left but the Lord, right? Do you see anything else? Yeah, right. Yep. I think you're right. The word, the word you use, demean or degrade, those, that's almost precise. And that's what sin does. Why does sin degrade people? If you sin against somebody, why does that degrade them? It does all these other things. It treats them as less than human. It breaks them. Why does it degrade them? You think you're better than they are, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So when you treat somebody as an animal or subhuman and you break them, you actually end up degrading them, okay? Now, look at your next picture and flip open to uh, John chapter 8. I'm sorry, say that again? Uh, it's later on in Job. That was Job 2. Where his wife says, you know, curse God and die. And then later on is where it sort of sorts everything. Let me see if I can find it for you. 
Um, let me get to the end here. I think she does. Yeah, she does. Exactly right. Yeah. Job's final appeal. Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, let's see, the Lord answers Job. Yeah, Job's confession and repentance. And then the Lord restores his fortune in Job chapter 42. Uh, yeah, new. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil the Lord had brought upon him, and each of them gave him a piece of money. Um, but yeah, it doesn't say anything about... Uh, about yeah, about a new about his uh, former wife. It just says he dies an old man full of full of years. What's that? No, that's what I said. It doesn't say anything about that. But what you know is, yeah, and it doesn't say the old one, the old one. It doesn't say that the current wife is around. And it doesn't also say you got a new one. It doesn't really say much. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. Who knows? Who knows? Hopefully, yeah. I mean, that's what you want in the story, right? And, part, and here's the thing. Part of the reason the Lord leaves these texts open-ended is because he wants you to fill in the gaps. That's not being unfaithful. These are stories. These things actually happened, but he wants you to, you know, he wants you to be smart about it and say, what could the Lord have done here? Bread, you said, or red? Oh, red. Exactly right. Whenever you have people caught in sin, it's almost always in red. Now, hold on. Well, here's the thing. I mean, Satan's temptation could have become flesh in his wife. That's very true. Yeah. Um, and, the, and here's the point. You know, don't think too long about that because guess what? Satan's temptation takes flesh in all of us. Yeah, that's the point of the text. So we can't just say, oh, Job's wife, what a mean witch. She's Satan. Um, guess what? Uh, yeah, the scarlet letter. You know, I, I get it. So... It takes flesh in all of us. That's the point. And here's and here's the thing. Why we've why we've talked about not touching evil is because we've always said if you touch evil, you will what? More than that, you you'll die eventually. But for the for the meantime, you'll do what? You'll give it incarnation. You, yeah, which is just a fancy way of saying you'll give it life. And guess what? If it really gets a hold of you, it's not just that you give it life in your words and your actions. Rebecca's point is helpful. You give it life in your being and your doing. Job's wife's problem was that she gave evil life in her being and in her doing. And you can see this, because then what happens, Job's wife gets no mention. So we have no idea what happened to her. Hopefully she was restored. But the point is, when people embody evil, families and communities are broken and shattered. This is what evil does. And when evil engages you personally from someone else, it treats you as less than human, it breaks them, it degrades them, and frankly, if you're broken, degraded, and treated as less than human without being restored, you yourself are open to evil. Evil's like, what's that stupid phone game you always play where you, uh, Joe went to the barber shop, and then by the time you get to the end, it was Sally got her nose, her, you know, her toes done. Her nose done. Maybe she can. Yeah, telephone. Okay, so telephone. It's like that. Evil just keeps carrying on, but it takes on different incarnations. And at the end, it's still evil, but it's completely different than it was before. Okay. Look at John 8. Let me read you the story. Well, I wonder if I should... Yeah, let me read you the story first. 
Woman caught in adultery, John 8. Actually, it starts 753. Um, and here's the thing. You know, you all can go home and uh, figure out why some don't include John 753 to 811. The point is somebody thought it important enough to put it in a text, so it's at least worth our consideration. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And the caught in adultery actually means she was caught in the act. So it wasn't like, you know, she was walking out and they said, oh, we think that woman had an affair. She was actually caught in the act of adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to each other, teacher, rabbi, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, uh, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? So what, is, what are the Pharisees trying to do right off the bat? Uh, yeah, trap him by doing what to Jesus? Pit him against, pit him against Moses, right? In Lutheran circles, Moses is like St. Peter. He's always considered a bad guy. Guess what? In the Jesus circle, Moses is considered the best guy. Teacher, now in the law of Moses, commanded us, it commanded us to stone such a woman, so what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now this is interesting. What does Jesus not do right away? If you speak first... You lose. I ever tell you the story about my first governing board meeting at St. John's? <laughs> All the way back on Vicarage, you know, 40 years ago. <laughs> my very first meeting, I can remember Pastor Bruzek saying, you can go to the meeting, but you cannot speak. <laughs> Did I speak at that meeting? I've always been very obedient. I was very kind. Because if you speak first, you lose. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her, a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, who are considered to be, what, the wisest ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up. Now this is, so, so Jesus is on the ground. You've got to think about the action here. Jesus is on the ground, and the woman is standing before him, which means the place of prominence is given to whom in this text? The woman. Yeah, if you enter into the presence of royalty, you go down on one knee. Guess who's down on one knee? Jesus is. Jesus stood up, and he said to her, Woman, where are they? That's great. Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Isn't that a great text? Isn't that great? Now look at your picture there. So you've had, you've had the first thing about Job's wife showing you what it is when close friends betray you. And now you've got a text from the woman caught in adultery showing you what it is to be forgiven by Jesus. What do you see in the picture? One, she's in red. Okay. Very much ashamed. Yeah. You don't see her face. Yes, her, his one hand is open, um, sort of inviting, in some sense, inviting her to, to, to stand up. What else do you see? Yes, which are in Latin, which say, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Peccato is sin, primus first, um, and then you have cast the first stone after them, the second line. What else do you see in the picture? Well, I don't know. Why does Jesus have red? 
yeah, I think I think it's it's. Yeah, I think you're right. That's sort of um, that's a narrow way of looking at it, but I think that's part of what's in here. Part of it is he understands us, but the broader way of talking about that is he's God and he's man. Remember, blue is the cover, color of heaven, divinity. Red is the color of humanity, sin. So Jesus bears both colors because he's both human and divine. But the blue trumps the red. And of course, who always wears blue? Yeah, Mary always wears blue because her right position is to give birth to God. Okay? Yes, exactly. The light from his face sort of casts its, its shadow down upon her. Actually, lights her up. And lights up, yes, and lights up his body. Especially his face. Because the face, remember in, in ancient times, in the Hebrew, if you had the Lord's face, you had his whole person. So, you know, you don't anger the Lord's face, right? It says in the Hebrew text, don't anger the Lord's face. Why? Because you anger the Lord himself. So if you have Jesus' face, you have Jesus. What else do you see? Uh, yeah, I think he is, well, now who's he looking at when he's in this picture? The crowd. Well, or they might be leaving. So what is he, so he has invitation in his left hand. He's pointing to something with his right. His face is light. That's gospel. But look at how his, that's a very good question. His face almost looks as though he is, it's more than content. It is, this is my word. This is what I, this is absolute, exactly. But he only has that absolute face, sort of a law face, as he looks at the crowd who was about to stone her. What does he have for the woman? An open hand. An open hand. Yeah, mercy. Yes. Yeah, in some sense it's, yeah. What's that? <laughs> She's, yeah. You could talk, you could, yeah, you could say it that way. Now, when the Lord, you remember, the, Jesus gets down on the ground, he, he writes in some sense the law on the ground. Remember, when's the last time the law wrote, the law wrote, the Lord wrote the law with his finger. Do you remember when that happened? Uh, yes, on the mountain. Where did he write? Where did he write the law? On the stone. Now, where does he write it here? On the ground. On the ground, which, as the artist says, the ground is sand. Now, this is interesting. So he writes in Exodus, sort of his objective standard. He writes it on stone. But here, as he deals with the woman, where does he write the law? In sand. Yeah, well, it could be in tiny stones. <laughs> he writes it in the sand. Why? Because all pastoral care is specific. Jesus gives a specific dose of the law here to the woman. It's not this objective Exodus 20, these are my ten words and this is how you will live. It is, this is a very unique case. This woman has sinned very uniquely, and now we need to care for her very uniquely. Is it still the law? Yes. But it's given its proper dosage at the proper time for a proper person. This law doesn't apply to everybody. So he doesn't write it in stone. What he's going to do when she leaves is what? It does look like stone, but the artist didn't do it in stone. I know it does, but she says she did it in sand. So she did it in sand for a specific reason. The artist says that. Yes, 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 yes. He's going to wipe it away. Why? Because this case is done, and the next case is going to be different. Yeah. And, and various things... Yes, and what you find Jesus doing is actually fulfilling Moses. So he's trying to bring Moses to life. Um, but yeah, what you have here is you have a very objective standard, the ten words. Those are the law, forever and ever, amen. 
But then throughout time, you have various circumstances. What they did in the Old Testament is different sins than they commit today, maybe, or different circumstances. So what happens is the Lord pushes things, nudges things, all from the source, the ten words. And this is one instance. This would fall under don't commit adultery. This would fall under don't lie. All these ten words, they come together in this woman, and he pushes it and nudges it and makes it. Yes, exactly. 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 Which, like, don't bear false witness. All those sorts of things come into play. Yeah, in some sense it is like that. It is, um, which is, you know, in the scriptures. Yeah. Good. So Jesus as the one who forgives. What you know most about Jesus in this text are hands, feet, and mouth. Right? That's what you know most about him. He walked to the woman. He put his hand out. He wrote on the ground, and he spoke. That's what you know about Jesus. And that, of course, has connections to the ministry as well. Okay? You see anything else? Yeah. Really? Well, yeah, that's true. His is almost a rose. Yeah. It almost looks a little. It almost looks a little pink. The color he's wearing, which. Yeah. And his is more, you know, pink or rose in the church is very much a color of hope. And that's sort of, that, that's part of it. It also could be blood and sort of it gets faded by the blue of divinity and how that all, yeah. Okay, that was fun. Any other questions, comments, thoughts? Yes. Uh, yes, I, uh, yes, idolatry, right, there's an idol. Uh, yeah, so um, just, no, 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 this is fine. Uh, if you had to tell me what an idol is, what's an idol? Yeah, it's something, you put your trust in something other than the Lord, okay? Or something, something uh, yeah, something takes the place, you, you have your eyes focused on something else other than Jesus. It can be anything. Your money, oftentimes money is the scapegoat. You know, oh, your money is your idol. Well, not for everybody. Some people don't have money. Well, it's not, but people sometimes will say, you know, um, my life in this city is more important than what happens at my church. That means your money becomes your idol. You've refocused your eyes. Not for everybody. Or yourself or your kids. Yeah, but the point, yeah, the point is if you can't forgive yourself, um, then you've not let the Lord have his way with you. What are you focused on? If you can't forgive yourself, you're always looking at yourself. You're not looking at Jesus who says, hey, you did that. It's all okay. I died for that. I forgive that. I love you. It's all going to be fine. So, so long as you're self-consumed, yourself has become your idol. We're supposed to be Jesus-consumed, not self-consumed. And people are consumed with everything today. It's not just yourself. It can be, I mean, pick your thing. The next fad, the next computer, the next car, the next house, whatever. Self-loathing. Sometimes people just like to complain. And they're complaining. No, I'm serious. And their complaining becomes an idol. How do they, how do they get through the day? Complain. I'm, <laughs> I'm not joking. So for people, it's not always money, but it happens all the time. Some people are just, they just have lots of bad days, but lots of bad days put together make for one really long bad day because something else has got your attention. We can talk more about it. I feel like that wasn't a very good answer, but we can talk more about it. All right, let's pray and let's go, okay? Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.